Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Well, welcome, everybody. We're coming to you live from the Toby Family Auditorium at the Commonwealth Club. It's week to week, the political roundtable for Thursday, February 28th, 2019. I'm John Zipper, your host for week to week. Welcome to our seventh anniversary program. We have been through, uh, yeah. We've covered two presidential campaigns, Charlottesville, uh, the Tea Party, death of Mayor Ed Lee, and way too much Donald Trump, as I'm sure most people would probably tell us. Um, On tonight's program, we're going to discuss Michael Cohen on Capitol Hill, of course, the Green New Deal, California's GOP leadership, and more. And of course, we'll send you off with our live news quiz. Everyone's welcome at the Commonwealth Club, so any opinions expressed up here are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. Now let's meet our panelists for tonight. Start right next to me with Dan Borenstein. He's the editorial page editor for the East Bay Times, and you can follow him on Twitter at Borenstein Dan. So welcome back, Dan. Thank you. Next to, I should say, Dan number one is Carla Marinucci. She's a senior writer for Political California Playbook, and she's on Twitter at C. Marinucci. So thank you, Carla. And our second Dan is Dan Schnur, professor at the University of Southern California Annenberg School of Communications. He's on Twitter at Dan Schnur. So welcome back, Dan. Uh, I think you all know how we do this. There are question cards spread throughout the seats. Write out some questions. People will deliver them to me, and I'll try to ask them during our program here tonight. Now let's get on to our roundtable. Michael Cohen spent much of yesterday giving public testimony to the House Oversight Committee. Uh, and I guess this followed closed-door testimony he had given to congressional committees. Now during this public testimony, President Trump's former lawyer and admitted fixer well, he admitted previous lying to the Congress, he, and he accused Trump of numerous acts that could complicate the president's legal fights. Now, congressional Republicans and other supporters of the president responded quite forcefully uh, to Cohen and have been arguing against uh, anyone believing anything he said, right? This is a man who is going to jail for lying. Um, Carla, let's start with you. What are some of the things we learned from Cohen's testimony, or did we not learn anything from Oh, I think we learned a lot. I mean, this was bingeable TV in every way. I don't know about you all, but, you know, this had a little bit of The Sopranos, House of Cards. It had, you know, uh, Goodfellas. It had it all in there. Uh, but it had serious stuff um, that we that we learned. And I think, you know, not since the 70s, a lot of you remember, I certainly do, watching John Dean, you know, talk about a cancer on the presidency. You had the president's a uh, longtime lawyer talking about him being a racist, a liar, a con man. This was, this was shocking stuff. But he had the goods with him. He had the checks that were uh, paid uh, with regard to uh, the National Enquirer stories on uh, Stormy Daniels. He had um, uh, testimony that Trump knew about uh, that he was possibly going to lie to Congress with regard to the Trump Tower deal in Moscow. Um, He talked about how uh, Trump was aware of the WikiLeaks uh, uh, dumps on Hillary Clinton's emails from Roger Stone. And there were all kinds of, uh, those were sort of the major mm-hmm. um, headlines out of it. But boy, I mean, you had a lot of Californians up there on the oversight panel. And we got some really interesting tantalizing threads there with regard. You had Ro Khanna, uh, um asking Cohen about possible criminal conspiracies with regard to uh, Trump, his sons, and whether the Southern District of New York is looking into that. And Cohen uh, didn't want to say, which means, yes, they are probably. <laughs> um, you had uh, Jackie Spear asking him about whether there were loved, uh, a love child, whether there was a love child, and what other other National Enquirer stories and were being And she was squelched. clearly disappointed by the answer. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> right. Um, you know, you had um, Harley Ruda, um, the, who just uh, took the seat from Dana Rohrbacher, uh, getting into the whole Felix Sater, the mobster, the Russian the mobster who had the office in the 26th uh, floor of Trump Tower next to the president's office uh, and didn't pay any rent, by the way. I mean, uh, and now he's going to be called. Uh, I I thought it was fascinating all around, and I think we have just (coughs) to see the beginnings of some of these other folks being called for the the committee. Here's the thing, Carla, and here's the question I really have for you. 
And, and, and for you, Dan, especially as the political expert down there, you know, political consultant expert, if you will, have we just watched two and a half years of political inoculation? In, in, in other words, are we at the point where, I, you know, we knew about most of this stuff already. Was, was there anything aside from the speaker phone with Roger Stone on the other end? Did we learn anything new that's truly going to move the dial? I'm not convinced. You know, and, and, and there are two parts. Or is it going to move the dial in public opinion? And, you know, this is a great soap opera. And I agree. It was, it was, it was, it was compelling television, yeah. if you will, as compelling as anything in Washington can be. <laughs> but, but, but I'm not sure that we really moved the public opinion dial very much, number one, because people are already so polarized. But the other part of it is, are we really, are, are we really making a difference mm-hmm. in terms of anything legally here? I'm not sure we are. You know, I think, I think um, we're going to see other, um, Felix Satter is one of the ones going to be called before the Oversight Committee, as are apparently Trump Jr., mm-hmm. possibly Ivanka Trump. We're going to hear more about the taxes. There were questions about tax fraud that were very, very relevant. I think this may you know, have an effect um, of sort of unraveling what this story is. How much longer the Republicans, though, um, can just ignore what's going on? And what was, I think, striking about this whole uh, scene yesterday was none of the Republicans on the committee asked any substantive questions about what Cohen was actually saying. They were on the attack on him, but they didn't defend the president. Well, Congressman Jamie Raskin, uh, the Democrat, uh, I thought analyzed the Republicans' approach to the hearings yesterday perfectly. He said, you're not angry that the president of the United States is lying. You're not mad that Michael Cohen is lying. You're mad that he's stopped lying. (laughs) Um, I guess guess I'd offer a couple couple thoughts if I can. Um, One, I mean – I think Dan Bornstein, not surprisingly, is onto something here, which is a lot of sizzle, but the steak is still in Robert Mueller's kitchen, and I know we'll talk about that in, in just a moment. That said, it's not a good week for President of the United States <laughs> when, the, uh, when, when, when the failure of a seminal nuclear arms agreement on a world stage is only the second worst thing that happens to you. <laughs> so, so not so, so, so not a good week for him, but I think but I think Dan's point is is a good one. Um, as Carla said, the president's attorney, former attorney, referred to the president of the United States as a racist, as a liar, and as a criminal. Um, if you thought on Monday of this of of this week of, of last week, if you thought on Monday of last week that the president of the United States was a racist, a liar, and a criminal, you still do. Um, if you didn't think that on Monday of last week, you still don't. And what's happened, I think, over two and a half years is an already hyperpolarized and extraordinarily balkanized electorate has become even more polarized um, and balkanized. We talk a lot about, uh, in my classes, both at SC and at UC Berkeley, about selective outrage um, and watching both sides, the Republicans yesterday, but Democrats certainly have their moments on this also, being filled with righteous indignation and outrage when someone on the other side does something wrong and finding a way to either minimize or ignore it when someone on their side does as well. It was an important week in terms of the shaping of public opinion. But ultimately, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is all prelude uh, to the release of the Mueller report and what happens then, and we can come back to it later. But I'll, I'll offer just I'll offer just one other thought. The most important thing that happened this week, from a political perspective, was neither North Korea nor Michael Cohen. Um, rather, it was the vote of the U.S. House of Representatives um, uh, to push back against the president's declaration of an emergency of a national emergency on the border. Um, it only requires four members, Republican members of the United States Senate um, to pass that bill in the Senate. There are already three. But getting back to the point of Mueller, if the president at some point is impeached, which he probably will be, uh, then it moves to the Senate, at which point the Senate re- would require a two-thirds vote in order to remove from, him from office. Mm-hmm. That requires 20 Republican votes. So what we learned this week is that Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and Tom Phyllis are the first three 
the question in the months ahead is at some point, are there 17 other Republicans in the United States mm-hmm. Senate who would vote to convict a president of the United you're, States? And you're thinking of the answer to that is? I'm thinking it's getting closer. I would say, really? I mean, we can, we can rank them if you want. Lamar Alexander, number four, Mitt Romney, number five. Mm-hmm. I would tell you if, if, if we don't have time to go through all 20 tonight, right. but if you go through it one by one, what you get to is the 19th and 20th Republicans are two of the three Republicans who, senators who ran against Donald Trump for president. Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, or Marco Rubio, two of those three would need to vote to convict Donald Trump in order for him to be removed from office. So big week, important week, exciting week, but don't lose sight of the fact that Mr. Mueller is still working very, very quietly, and ultimately what he produces is going to have much more of an impact going forward than anything we saw uh, in Washington over the last several days. Mm -hmm. Dan Schneider, you bring up Robert Mueller, and I read yesterday that uh, Robert Mueller's people were watching the uh, Michael Cohen testimony very clearly because, of course, Michael Cohen was under a, a cooperation agreement um, with the Mueller investigation. And if he had lied at all in the testimony, he could be looking at much more than his current sentence of three years in prison. Um, how confident should we be that what Cohen told us yesterday or told Congress yesterday was true? There's, a, there, there's one glaring problem or potential problem in Cohen's testimony. And I'm guessing that anyone who take time out of their lives to attend a discussion like this one has already read this. But when Cohen uh, said yesterday that he had not sought a job in the White House, um, there's been a significant amount of journalism that suggests just the opposite. And it's been reported. I don't think under Mueller, I think by the uh, Southern District in New York, that in fact there is email traffic that reflects Cohen uh, talking about wanting a White House job. If he lied to Congress yesterday about that, that doesn't mean that everything else he said isn't true. But, exactly, but it makes it a much more complicated case going forward. The other thing to watch in addition to Mueller is watch Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff. Yeah. Because as more and more and more House Democrats are clamoring for impeachment, I think they have the good sense to if not stop impeachment proceedings, at least delay them, thinking, I think, correctly that the faster that the House were to rush to an impeachment, the harder a case they'd have to make to the American people. The more careful, the more cautious, the more measured they are, uh, the more... Yeah. Dan, how do you see this playing out timing-wise? You know, I I mean, I'm I'm trying to envision how this would play out timing-wise over the next... Two years, yeah. you know, I mean, be, 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 if, if this was to happen, because I, I'm, I'm remain unconvinced that impeachment is a winner for the Democrats for 2020. Um, I, 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 I think it may motivate their base, but I find it hard to believe they really would get the votes in the Senate. Push come to shove, yeah, unless unless there's a much bigger smoking gun, or unless the report really turns out to be a lot more damning than what we've already heard. Well, this is where I think Nancy Pelosi and Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff um, Mm -hmm. uh, are approaching this in a very savvy way. Um, They know that their base, on the off chance that there's anyone who represents that base here tonight, feel free to agree, (laughs) Um, are very, very, very enthusiastic um, about impeachment. But to your point, Dan, and I think it's the right one, um, if impeachment is going to be a net positive during a presidential election season as opposed to a net negative, the more measured, the more careful, the more cautious they looked before taking that step, the better off. off They're going to need a lot more evidence, though. They're going, to, oh. they're, they're going to need a bigger smoking gun than certainly has come out so right. far. And I think right? we're going to see what happens with, the, with yeah. Mueller. I, I, what I'm wondering is whether this is going to be kind of a death by a thousand paper cuts kind of thing, where every day there's more and more uh, headlines unfolding, other issues that, that damage the president that way, that, that erode some of the confidence but, the base has, especially if, say, the, the economy um, isn't going as gangbusters. Oh, yeah, the economy. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I, I think Dan's yeah. point is a really good one, and I've heard Carla make it also. Um, 
the Democrats didn't win back the House of Representatives in November by talking about impeachment. Yeah. They won the House back by talking about the economy and by talking about health care and by talking about matters right. of public policy. Especially by talking about health care and, and taxes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So imp- Im- impeachment can shape the landscape, but I think your instinct is yeah. exactly right, Dan. It's not the deciding factor in an election. That said, the neat thing about jobs like ours is we get to pretend we have some idea what we're talking about. <laughs> if, 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 if anybody can point to a previous instance where President of the United States was impeached in the middle of his own re-election campaign, we can, we can use that as a precedent. Otherwise, we're just making this up as we, as, yeah. as we go along. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think this Are is we? where the Democrats now in the 2020 field really have to uh, play – uh, play it carefully. Um, they have to be talking about the economy. They have to be talking about the issues that matter to voters. They cannot be focusing everything on Trump. And that, that is the danger as they're out there. But, mean, that doesn't really mean, get... but that doesn't mean not to pursue impeachment. It means not to pursue it in as hysterical a way as some might Yeah, as topic A. Well, well, the danger, though, is that you really get, if you will, off-message. If it, uh, impeachment could really throw them off message in a certain sense if, if, yeah. if it really becomes a question about uh, if you really want to push the economy, if you really want to push health care, if you want to really push global warming and, and, and environmental change. Um, if the whole thing is impeachment, you know, the other danger is if they succeed. I mean, there, there, there's this other thing. Then they've lost their foil for 2020. I mean, what, what if what if what if they actually impeached him? You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying. In, in other words, well, if I mean, remember, in, in, in impeachment is not a removal from office; it's the first step. Right. No, 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 if, no. If he, but were, if he if, was convicted, if he, if, yeah, if, if he, he were if if he were convicted and removed no, sorry, from office, yeah, yeah. it would require at least and probably significantly more than 20 Republican United States senators. At which yeah. point, it became a bipartisan effort. Yeah. Not a yes, but, 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 my, but my point is, if they do actually remove him from office, mm-hmm. if the Senate actually does convict him, if you will, then, then where does that leave you for 2020? You know, they, they, they I, act, I think you not know, going to happen. I would say this. If I, were, if, I, if I were a campaign strategist for any one of the 94 Democrats seeking the presidential <laughs> nomination. 95 today. 95 yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would not figure that into my calculations. <laughs> what I would be concerned about um, is so you whether those voters in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan who voted for Trump two and a half years ago who elected Democratic governors last year, how they're responding to a Green New Deal. And once again, Nancy Pelosi being very, very smart. Yes, that's right. Trying to keep a lid on the most aggressive ideological goals within her own caucus, recognizing that it might be a little bit too ambitious for the swing voters that her right. party's nominee needs hey, to win. Yeah, and we'll get into the Green New Deal in a little bit. Someone from the audience asks, right along these lines, what do you think about Bernie Frank's suggestion that Trump should not be impeached because... Mike Pence would be far more electable. <laughs> Which is kind of where I was going. Yeah, that yeah. is kind of where yeah. you're going. Yeah. But. Well, I think yeah. your other point, Dan, is the right one here, which is one of timing. Yeah. Um, from the day of the Watergate break-in till the day Nixon resigned, Richard Nixon resigned from office was almost two years. From the date that the Monica Lewinsky scandal was first reported till the day that Bill Clinton was acquitted by the uh, – or not convicted by the Senate was over a year – don't get me wrong. If a president ought to be removed from office for violating the oath of his office, then he ought to be removed for constitutional grounds. From all, from all practical standpoints, we're talking about months, if not weeks, yeah. of difference between when that process would conclude versus when a presidential election would take yeah. place. And, and, and the danger of that, I think, is at that point, then, people – I think there's a real danger of alienating voters by saying – why are we going through all this when we have when we can just that is the Democrats dilemma here? I, I think I, I, I agree with you. I think yeah. there's a there's a big there's dilemma. A, for the there's Democrats. A, I think that's the dilemma. Yeah. yeah. OK. We've got a number of questions from the audience that are all along the same lines of uh, what will it take to unravel Trump's base? No tax refunds for 2018 or what will it take for the Senate and House Republicans to turn on the president? And when will we get to see the uh, Mueller report? Um, on, on, the, you know, on the unraveling Carla? of the base, I think the tax 
issue is a big issue. And I'm hearing from a lot of voters out there who um, were used to getting, say, I just talked to a woman yeah. the other day, used to getting you know, $6,000 back every year. This year it's, it's $400. She's wondering where, where, is it go- where is it gone, the tax, the GOP tax bill here in They're California. They're not familiar with what they did with yeah. adjusting the withholding tables. With the state part, yeah, 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 the state and local deductions for it really hit California. It's hard. And now people are starting to realize uh, the big bite that this is taking. Uh, and that that is something that's going to hurt him. The issue of health care is going to continue to hurt him. We, we, we're hearing more and more stories of people who, you know, cannot, uh, with, with the efforts to destroy Obamacare mm-hmm. came uh, some real consequences on human lives out there. These were the same issues that drove uh, the 2008 election. The, the, the issue of health care and those stories of people out there who we're dying of cancer and could not afford. We, how, we just heard, saw a bunch of headlines about people can't afford insulin. They're having to go to Mexico to get it. These kinds of stories, if they continue, if this kind of reporting continues, I think those are the kind of things that are going to drive voters in the heartland. Um, and issues of jobs. When we're talking about promised um, auto manufacturing jobs that have not materialized, uh, that promises were made with regard to numbers of jobs in the Rust Belt states that have not materialized. This is stuff that's you going see, to... I think that's far more important. Yeah. I, I think, you, you know, in, in a certain sense, we can talk, you know, the impe- impeachment in California is a good topic, perhaps. But, but, but we got to keep in mind here that this is a country in which the swing states are, the, in, the, in the electoral college map, are the ones that count. And there's there is it is the economy and it is there is a the Democrats do have a strong card to play in the sense that Trump overplayed his hand in the 2016 election. You know, he promised the world and that really hasn't those jobs haven't really materialized in that way. And And we still have the split. We still have the great split between the haves and the haves and the have-nots. Uh, that, to me, is a much more potent message for the Democrats in 2020 than, that, frankly, right. impeachment threatens to derail. Well, let's, let, let's agree that there are two separate and somewhat related topics on the table now. One, whether a president of the United States violated his oath of office and should or should not be removed from office, number one. And number two, who should be elected president in November of 2020. There's certainly overlap on yeah. those two topics, but I think you guys are right to make a point that they're not synonymous. And again, as we talked about earlier, the Democrats succeeded in, in their House races in 2018 by having the discipline not to become overly captivated by the impeachment conversation. That said, um, what do politicians of both parties do better than anything else? They overplay their hand. Mm-hmm. Um, Beto O'Rourke, um, the almost senator from Texas, made a very controversial statement this week. He declared that he was a capitalist. <laughs> and I'm not maligning either him or those in the Democratic Party who, di- who disagree. But um, I think the, the, what will be most interesting to me as the Democratic primary goes forward is whether Democratic primary voters vote with their heads or with their hearts. Um, if Democrats decide, as polls suggest, that beating Trump is the most important goal uh, that there is in 2020, and it's worth making some ideological compromises in order to do so, that's one set of options. Um, if, on the other hand, the lesson from the last 10 years of American politics that Democrats have learned is, hey, we need our own Tea Party, then all of a sudden that middle ground in those right. states that Dan and Carlo were talking about a minute ago become much more up for, uh, much more for grabs. I, I would suggest a sleeper topic that uh, or a sleeper issue that will be affecting some of those races, or at least increasingly in the minds of particularly the heartland states, is the record numbers of suicides among farmers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which is both obviously an economic right. and perhaps That's some right. other issues. Um, well, let's uh, talk about a Trump-related issue, but that's a California issue, and that is high-speed rail and Governor Newsom. Um, Dan Bornstein, when California Governor Gavin Newsom uh, announced a 
either a slowdown or a cancellation of part of the high-speed rail program that had been championed by his predecessor, Jerry Brown, he quickly got into a public spat with President Trump over the remaining funding for that project. What happened and what is likely to happen with this? Well, I mean, first of all, when I first heard him, his his state of the state yeah. comments about high-speed rail, I, there, there was in me a finally, you know, <laughs> So, you know, we're going to have some rational discussion of the reality of this. And it, the, this, we really hadn't even put out the first stories mm-hmm. when the backtracking began. Um, and, and look, at the, the political pressures there are, are pretty, pretty staggering. In, within California, the denial of the economics of, the high, of high-speed rail are, are tremendous. The labor unions want the jobs in the Central Valley. Uh, the enviros are in love with high-speed rail, uh, no matter whether or not it's actually going to get ridden or not. But, you know, as, as much as it'd be a great thing to have, the economic, analysis don't, don't pay, the economic analyses don't pan out. And more importantly, what voters were originally promised is nothing like what they're actually talking about now. So, so Gavin had it right at first that we aren't going to be able to deliver this for what's promised. This isn't what, what the original deal was. And there's, there's really no way to get there right now. Uh, but the bottom line is the political pressure is within, what, 12 hours? Was it that long? I'm not sure. You know, I don't yeah, mean. I, I, don't you know, I mean, the flip flop was, was pretty. But, but some of the headlines were the governor kills high speed rail, which really wasn't accurate. No, he, he was, that's right. He was say, he was scaling it back. He was saying, "Look, his words up there were, let's be real. Right now, we can't we can't get it from uh, you know the Central Valley through the Tehachapi's uh, to San Jose. We need to." Concentrate on the Central Valley. That's where he got into. Well, uh, yeah, but, but but there was nothing in that speech that that suggested anything but this is all I'm looking at right now. Here's, right. It was only after yeah. the fact that he said, but but. Yeah, yeah. The, the governor's staff called it a communications error. I don't think it was a communications error. I think it was an error of political misjudgment. Um, so first of all, go back. Jerry Brown has known for the last seven and a half years that there would not be high-speed rail in California and kept talking about it because it suited his goals politically, but he knew it was never going to happen. His only goal was not having it killed on his watch. I used to call him Governor Ahab in the Great White Rail because <laughs> it, just, it, you know, it, was, it was obsessed by fighting for this. And I think what happened with, with, with Newsom, and I, agree, and I agree with you guys, Gavin Newsom deserves credit. Because, by the way, and Carly, you're right, saying that something is going to happen someday in politics is saying that it's not going to happen. Um, I'm going to put a a space shuttle on Jupiter someday. (laughs) But there are no political consequences for the next several centuries before I have to worry about actually making that happen. So Newsom, I think Newsom's advisors believed that he would get more points for courage by doing the right thing and pulling the plug on something that wasn't going to happen He'd get more points for courage than he'd lose for backlash. And when it became clear that it was just the opposite, they backdraft. And saying that it will happen someday is just a polite way in politics of saying, don't hold your breath, your children's breath, or your grandchildren's breath, because it's not not going to happen. And I give him credit for that, because I know how to get from L.A. to San Francisco. I call it Southwest. (laughs) The problem is my problem is getting from San Francisco to Antioch, and that's why that's why regional and that's why regional transit, of which Dan knows more about this than just about anybody, is really the answer. When was the last time you were in Antioch? (laughs) In a while. But if but if Newsom but if Newsom does, um, I was in Hayward. But if Newsom uh, but if but but if Newsom is going to redirect a significant amount of high speed rail money toward regional rail in the state's major metro areas, this one included, then I think he deserves bipartisan. But he's not. But that's the thing. He's not going to redirect any money. There's no money in that pot left over. Well, and that's, Donald that's Trump a, wants back and $3 right. billion. I mean, there's right. not even enough to yeah. do what he wants to do practically. There's just enough barely to do the little segment he wants to do. So let me ask you this yeah. then. If yeah. you build a train from Bakersfield to Merced, um, 
are there enough uh, – no, all jokes aside, I mean the Central Valley does benefit from it. There's economic and, and – mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. Absolutely. But is there enough ridership to pay for it? If, no. If you – It doesn't matter. The to that but here's the it, thing. It, it, it doesn't matters. matter because, because the money has essentially already been committed. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean it, it, the, the sad part about it is if you, if you killed that part of it right now, is his thinking – uh, you know, and and you know, uh, then then you wouldn't have any. The money's essentially so much of it's already been spent. They're they're going to have. The, the thinking is, if you complete that one segment, at least then someday, maybe you can you expand, can right, you right, can maybe expand. Right, but in right. the meantime. You can run regular trains over it. But in the meantime, you know, we now we've got a space. war between yeah. the Trump administration and California. Yeah. Yeah. Elaine Chao said, I think today, yeah. they're, go- they're going to try to get this money back. Right. But, but uh, you know, uh, and, and that's going to be an interesting technical le- right. legal fight as to, because, you know, my understanding of it is that the, pleading that leg, if they, and they've got a dead, they're there. Yeah, it's 2024. They have they, to have some kind they, of. Uh, it's right. 2022. 2022. Yeah, I mean, sorry. they're up, if, if I remember correctly, yeah, yeah. you know, they're up against a real tight deadline. But if they do complete that leg, then they have done what they said right. they were going to do. And the government came. You, know? you guys, but but you guys both believe that Gavin Newsom told the truth in his speech and then backtracked from it. Yes. Okay. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. Yes, I, 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 believe, I, I believe that he said what he intended to say in the you know in state of the state speeches the damn thing about it is they actually write them very carefully and i really believe that he said exactly what he intended to say and until the blowback until here. the blowback yeah, yeah. See, that's a gr- that's a great point the yeah. difference between making a statement like that in answer to a question from an intrepid journalist yeah and maybe saying something you didn't intend to Versus saying it when you are reading draft forty-five of a speech that's been written and rewritten and rewritten yeah. for several weeks. I think it's yeah. a, it's there, 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 there is no, there is no equivocating mm-hmm. in the, the in the words of the speech itself. I mean, he there was no, but maybe someday we'll, you know, there there, there was none of this, you know. But we're going to look for future money in the future. Okay. He just was saying we're going to complete this little section. This is all we can do right now. We'll we'll do what we can. And there's no money that we can see. There's there as he I believe his words were something like there's no way to get from, from here to there or something like you know mm-hmm. I mean yeah 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 I mean it's, he was it was one of the one of the ways in the in the state of the state that he kind of differentiated himself from Jerry Brown yes I mean and basically said I'm not him you yeah. know uh, twin tunnels uh, we're, we're not doing that one either yeah. you know, you know um, he was trying to show it, it, right it was right in the same section they were yeah. the first two things in the speech he was trying to show. Hey, I'm it's a, a new era. It's a new yeah. era. I'm a We're financial the page. realist. Right. You know, right. you know, I'm giving up on I'm giving up on Jerry's um, big picture, big picture legacy projects. Right, right. You know, he didn't get them done. I'm not going to invest all this political capital in these. I'm moving on to more important things. That's like what housing, etc. Right. Michael Kinsley, the great former columnist once said that a political gaffe is when a politician accidentally tells the truth. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, I mean, I, I'm not sure it was accidental. I said this thing, but yes, yeah, that's right. Uh, someone in the audience uh, basically brings up, not only and we've been talking about Trump and Michael Cohen, uh, we didn't really talk about Trump in North, excuse me, in Vietnam, meeting with the North Korean uh, leader, Kim Jong-un. Um, and yeah. saying, hey, you're not giving him credit for at least trying to denuclearize North Korea. I mean, does he deserve some credit? No, he gets, he, I think he gets credit for that. The, the issue is the, that this was um, diplomacy by reality show kind of in, in a way. I mean, there was no preparation. There was certainly not enough preparation if you talk to uh, uh, people who uh, have experience uh, in the State Department and elsewhere. Uh, he went in there uh, with a lot of pageantry hoping to... Uh, uh, to to work this out on a, on a fast track, and that's this is just not the kind of thing you can do that to. I think the more disturbing thing out of it was 
you know, going in praising Kim Jong Un. I'm in love with this guy. Uh, I mean, this is a guy who, you know, killed his brother-in-law with uh, with poison. Uh, uh, was it the uncle with an artillery gun and has uh, imprisoned tens of thousands of people in gulags? I mean, and to speak about him like that, uh, like like he was a best buddy, I think disturbed a lot of people. Coming out of it, uh, the issue of auto. Um, Warmberg, oh, uh, uh, saying he took the word of the dictator um, that, uh, well, uh, you know, this boy came that. back in a coma and died days later, an American. Um, and just as he took the word of Putin that there's no, there was no intervention in the uh, election, and just as he took the word of the uh, Saudi prince that, well, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, we'd, I had nothing to do with that. Here we have number three uh, of of siding with uh, um, the dictator. Uh, I, I think that, quick, that's a- I think that's right. I'd offer two quick thoughts on this, John. One, Donald Trump is the fourth consecutive U.S. president uh, to overinvest his hopes in the North Korean dictator. And it was more obvious here because it was done in a more demonstrative way because Donald Trump does everything in a more demonstrative way. Um, but um, particularly on the Adewamler situation, even those congressional Republicans mm-hmm. who wouldn't take him on during the Michael Cohen hearings right, right. called him out on that. It's a basic matter of even uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, did today of, of human no. rights. Right. Trump has gotten some praise from North Korea experts on both sides that this type of approach might be just the type of thing to shake loose some progress. The flattery, the threats. And that sort of thing, um, but the but but the lack of preparation and particularly the unfortunate statements about the about the young man uh, undermined a great deal of that. Well, you know, you know, here, here's the, 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 there's that aspect of his unfortunate statements, which are very Trumpian, right? We, 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 as right. you said, we, we, there there there's a whole series of right. examples of that. Not obviously, you know, Saudi Arabia, right. you know, North Korea. You know, there's a whole series of them. But but the, the the real interesting question here is how when you listen to the two different accounts the North Korean account and Trump's account coming out of today's talks about what where they split and where they didn't there's how no communication how, how did we get to that point yeah. you know are both sides just lying is one side lying or not <laughs> you know it, it usually you don't come down. Usually, when you when they when they, these things get tough, first of all, this is part of the problem negotiating this in public like this. That's right. You know, but 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 Without you doing know, the homework ahead of time. But 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 this is this is just such a fundamental difference. It's kind of like you want to say, okay, guys, maybe you guys misheard each other. Maybe your interpreter screwed up. Let's get back in the room and maybe you can sort this out. But then you stop and you think, wait a minute. That should have happened before you ever got That's to right. North Korea. Well, and I think whether you yeah. call it exaggerations or misleading or lies, this is the real toll that Trump's approach has taken on him. I mentioned that any number of other U.S. presidents have overinvested their hopes in North Korea. It, I do not, I cannot think of another U.S. president who, if arguing a different version of events than North Korean leaders. I don't know that we would be wondering out loud about who was telling the truth mm-hmm. and who wasn't. Mm-hmm. We would be logically willing to assume that the North Koreans were misleading for their own purposes. Right. And given the events of the last two and a half years, in this one, we simply don't know. Well, no other president that I can think of would have gotten there without essentially a deal done. Correct. Right? That's right. I mean, it, it, it would have been hammered out. Long before, right? The summer before signing and yeah, I mean, they, they, something they, around. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, or they would have held driving meetings and and then had said we're going to meet again or whatever it is. But but you don't you don't end up walking away from a room just with a miscommunication, so to speak. Right. And it and it, and it and it is worth noting, you know, as the three people who preoccupied. Uh, ourselves in the discussion about impeachment a little bit earlier. It is worth noting that as unsettled a time as this is for the country politically, we have in the last two and a half years not faced a significant major crisis. Um, a world, uh, uh, a, 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 a war, a geopolitical crisis of that nature. You look at India and Pakistan. That's right. Um, 
Yeah, you, 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 you look at the ongoing challenges in the Middle East and the fact that we have not faced a challenge like that since January of 2019 and we're still feeling so unsettled is, is really remarkable. Well, and, and the reason we're feeling so unsettled is while it's true, we haven't had a huge impl- implosion or a huge event, we've had a very steady erosion of international... I don't know, decorum of international normalcy. We, right. we've have, we have this very disconcerting rightward, rightward you know, totalitarian and you know, uh, bigot, bigoted uh, movement that's sort of sw- erupting throughout Europe, uh, which, and- which is... Really and, from, I don't know, and from a press freedom point of view, I, I also thought it was disturbing reporters being thrown out of of uh, um, the session uh, during uh, during the meeting uh, with the president and Kim Jong Un. This is the kind of thing that we see in totalitarian countries. We should not see. And you guys American both make a, you guys both out. make a really good point because we live in the U.S. and because our culture works and our media works the way it does, we tend to hyper personalize these things. And these broader trends, as Carla and Dan both mentioned, I think, correctly, this is not a uniquely American phenomena. And the ADP in Germany and the Golden Dawn in Greece and the hardcore Brexiters in, in, in Great Britain. The, and, and, and India. And, and you want on a, yeah, a, a, a parochialism slash nativism slash bigotry is not unique to this country. Now, that said... For all of our lifetimes, this country has been held to another and a, and a higher standard, and, and we're not setting that example anymore. But it would be a mistake, and yeah. I think you guys are exactly right, to suggest that this is something that is unique to our country and our political leadership. Okay. And, and, and I guess what I'm saying is it would also be a mistake perhaps to, to – you know, we're, you're right that we haven't for the last couple of years had a big erupting event, but I think it would be a mistake to – not notice that how much fuel is being put on the fire right now. That that, that was my yeah yeah. Uh, we'll leave yeah. that as the last word. Yeah. We're going to talk to some different about some different kind of fuel because someone write wrote about whether we're going to uh, talk about the radical progressive socialist agenda. So let's talk about the Green New Deal. Um, I don't know if most people really know what's in the Green New Deal. It's worth kind of looking up. But uh, according to a resolution put forward by Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, of course, and uh, Democratic Senator Ed Markey, the bill would transition the country to use 100% renewable, zero-emission energy sources within 10 years. It would also include investing in electric cars, high-speed rail systems. Sorry, Gavin. Um, It also calls for universal health care, higher minimum wage, and anti-monopoly regulations. Carla, was this a shot across the bow of this newly energized left wing of the Democratic Party, or does it stand any chance of becoming a law? Uh, you know, this is this is a laundry list, and it's becoming a litmus test yeah. um, for a lot of the presidential uh, candidates. Many of them have now backed it. Of course, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi. Is uh, like, hang on a second. It's got you know this is a 14-page resolution yeah. that is just packed with all kinds of stuff. There's yes, there's a lot of climate change. Uh, uh, as you mentioned, high-speed rail transportation. It's also got you know indigenous people. Uh, it's got uh, cow methane. Uh, you know, it's got everything in it. And this is where, um, when you talk about the Democrats overreaching, or you know, as we go into 2020, um, yeah, the, the Republicans have already seized on this as this President Trump has just being some kind of a socialist uh, agenda. Well, it is. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and using I mean, it admittedly, in a, that's yeah, what yeah, and using it in it, but it, but in a, in a like Pejorative. utopian socialist okay, yeah. agenda kind of thing. Um, and I think the Democrats have to dial this back. It's uh, it's 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 all over the place. Um, and if you look at, uh, I mean, I was uh, looking at all the different. I mean, labor laws, guaranteed job, vacation, uh, health care, uh, uh, trade deals. It's got it all in there. Uh, I think the Democrats need to have a focused agenda. A lot of the um, uh, the ideals in here are laudable and something that you know, and, and discussions that need to be taken. But whether this is going to become law, I, I I'm going to. Uh, well, first of all, it's yeah. a it's, yeah. it's a resolution. It's a resolution. It's, it's not, never going to become. Yeah, yeah. And, the, know, and by the way, the costs are. Uh, I think the uh, some of the estimated costs are a trillion dollars when you look at the, fifty-one to ninety-three trillion, according yeah. to an admittedly center-right yeah. uh, group. 
Um, and that's over the decades. So yeah, over the, that's over decades, right. Yeah. What's, what's, interesting, what's interesting about this is that the Republicans, um, even more than they grabbed onto the term Obamacare a decade ago, have really latched onto the phrase socialism. Yes. And there's a, real, there's a generational component at work here. If you are not alive or of age of political awareness when the Cold War fell, oh, excuse me, when the Cold War ended, when the Berlin Wall, the, when the Berlin Wall fell, um, the word socialism doesn't carry the same emotional impact as it might for previous generations. My students, again, at SC and at Cal both, these are really, really smart people, but you call them a socialist and you may as well call them a Visigoth or a Philistine. It's a, a historical artifact that does carry some relevance, but not nearly as much. And if you look at public opinion polling, um, the term is uh, uh, enjoying a, a renaissance, particularly among right. yeah. younger progressives. But the point that Carla made and the point that Nancy Pelosi is clearly very aware of um, is the only way not to defeat Donald Trump um, is to indulge the most aggressive and ambitious ideological goals of the most uh, 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 fervent members of your party and leave the political center open for him to reclaim. I believe as strongly as I believe anything, and I think I've told this group before, I don't think that it is possible for Donald Trump to win re-election, but it is entirely possible for the Democrats to lose. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So Nancy Pelosi, who initially uh, told Politico that uh, uh, she was dismissive of the New Green Deal, or the Green New Deal, excuse me, uh, then later she kind of backtracked a little bit and said, oh, I, I appreciate the enthusiasm of this, uh, uh, quote, and any other proposals, unquote. She kind of has problems on both of her flanks, because this week she was going after, in fact, I think it's today, going after some of the moderate Democrats who have voted with Republicans on certain resolutions. Um, so she's basically telling them, stick in line. She's known for being able to keep yeah, her caucus in line. Right. But that's happening on, if you will, the right, but the moderate of the, the Democratic Party. And then on her left flank, you have you know, the very energized group who just considers her an old person. Yeah, so, but, but, but we keep, you know, what the, what the, what her left flank keeps forgetting is that they didn't win, take over Congress from the left flank in November, or the House, right. from the left flank. They took it over from the centrist flank. And if, and if they don't stay real with that, they could not only manage to lose the presidency, mm -hmm. they could lose the House. And I think that that's, uh, I, you know, I mean... I, but I, th I think it's been interesting to watch um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, because she's really become the target for the Republicans every day in every way, whether it's whatever she's wearing. She's the new Hillary uh, in, in that respect. Um, Watching her with the Cohen at the Cohen hearing was really interesting because this was a very smart woman who just didn't, you know, went, didn't use her speeches or bloviate, went right to it, got the information she needed. She has been incredibly um, uh, skillful in her use of social media and communications. Um, and she's kind of backtracked uh, origi her original criticism of Pelosi. She's on the cover of Rolling Stone with Pelosi this week. Uh, the, you know, she understands um, that Pelosi can help her and vice versa. Uh, so I think she's definitely someone to watch. And I think you may see her, you know, use her platform to get out all kinds of ideas. But she, I, I believe that they will take this and maybe tackle various aspects of it. But you're absolutely right. If they go too far, and um, and go uh, and and the presidential candidates, I think that's where the, where to watch Kamala Harris, for instance. I mean, every every successful presidential campaign, every successful general election presidential campaign has to do two things simultaneously. You have to excite and motivate your base, and you have to be able to reach beyond that base. Um, the Clinton campaign in 2016 and the Romney campaign in 2012 were very effective at reaching beyond their bases, so effective that their bases were not motivated to turn out for them. Um, but just as equal a danger is devoting so much time and energy 
to motivating your base that you leave people in the in in the center cold. That's what cost Republicans the House right. in November. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is a tremendously valuable tool for the Republican Party to motivate your base. As long as you realize, and this goes to the point that both of you were making, that that's only half of the equation. Okay. Um, So we just got done with an election. What better time to start talking about the next election? (laughs) The reason I bring this up, of course, is as we were joking about earlier, there are, you know, basically everyone who's a Democrat is running for president. Uh, It is the season for announcing their intentions. The most recent I've seen was East Bay Congressman Eric Swalwell, who says he is considering a run. And if he does run, he will give up his House seat. Dan Bornstein, how, <laughs> what type of a candidate do you think he would be? Do you think he's serious? What? Oh, I, I mean, I, th- I think he's serious in the sense that I think he wants to run. I think he's a very smart guy. He's, he, he's politically savvy. And my prediction is that, and folks, if you, if you're not, if you haven't thought about this, because in 2020, we have an early, Early, we've moved the primary up so that we matter in the presidential primary, but that moves all the other races up too. So we're going to be voting in March in 2020 instead of June, which means the filing to run for offices, local offices, and congressional offices is going to be December. My prediction is that when the time comes in December of this year, um, that Eric Swalwell... We'll look at how he's doing in the polls. He'll probably be in the single digits. He'll probably be below 5%. And he'll realize that he has a choice that he can just blow up his entire political career or say, well, I got a message out maybe, you know, and this was a good experience I learned and maybe next time. And he's going to file the run for it. I mean, look, he's he's 38. He's got two little kids. Uh, He's making all the right moves because he's saying, I don't know if I can run for president because this would hurt my wife's career. I mean, that is such a, a winner for women. Uh, they love to hear something, stuff like that. He's used, he's used the platform very well. He, he has an opportunity to address millennials. He's, he's been the head and founder of this thing called the Future Forum uh, for the Democrats, which has taken him around the country to talk to millennials. That's, that's what I think he's aiming for with this. I, I believe, I agree with you, Dan. I think he's going to announce he's going to run for president sometime in April. I think he's going to be on that debate stage. He'll be putting forth those millennial issues, which are really important to the Democrats. Uh, he has a base in Iowa because his dad is a, a police chief in Iowa. He was born in Iowa. He's been there 15 times. He's got staffers there. So it's going to be interesting to watch him and Kamala Harris, the two, two Californians. Will they be hoped, helped by this early primary or will she be? Uh, it's been pointed out, not, not really, not, not necessarily. The last Californian, uh, who ran for president and who won the California primary was Jerry Brown in the seventies. Uh, he didn't win it the other the other two times. Um, it's not a lock that California that, that Kamala it, the, Harris early, will will be will be advantaged by the early the, California primary because uh, the the votes are split up proportionally. There are and there are many more candidates. But the, and then the, the important difference between Swalwell and Harris. Uh, in He's terms much more centrist. Well, well, not only the other key point, though, in terms of the timing issue, is that for Swalwell, it's not a safe run if he runs for president. For Harris, she doesn't have to risk her seat because she's not up in twenty twenty. Right, exactly, yeah. and that's incredibly important. So, you know, I mean, Swalwell, Swalwell, in certain ways, is exactly the sort of candidate almost the Democrats need. He is a millennial. He's yeah. He, yet he, he's got he, a guy from Middle America. Yeah, yeah. But, well, and there, there is a lane for that in this uh, uh, the contest. And, really, and he and he he's got what he's got already three. I've lost track. Three terms already. Yeah, in three Congress. terms. Right. You know, I mean, he actually has been there, and he's he's actually been a I, fairly effective for the amount of experience he has. Right. It's unimaginable to me to see how in a crowded field of Democratic candidates on a crowded debate stage that he attracts the attention that I he agree. needs to sustain. That said, as Carla pointed out, he's 38 years old, which means if you think about it, he could withdraw from the next nine presidential campaigns and, <laughs> still, and he would still be younger than Bernie Sanders when he ran the 10th when he ran the, when he ran the tenth time. The early, uh, the, the early California primary um, serves, if anything, to make the first four primaries and caucuses even more important. Yeah. 
Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada get their uh, uh, importance exaggerated even further because you have to win one or more of those in order to come play in California. Carla made a really good point very briefly, and I want to underline it, is that because one, California is such a large state and such an expensive state, and two, because Democrats award their, del- uh, their delegates proportionally, unless Kamala Harris has won two or three or four of those first primaries, What's more likely to happen than anything is you'll see different Democratic candidates targeting different geographic regions of the state. Exactly. Um, and California not settling anything, maybe sending a couple of people home. But the, 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 the proportional warning of delegates really ser- it serves to prolong a primary, whereas Republicans give their dele- do in most states do winner take all, which shortens a primary. And if you think about it, it's a perfect reflection of sort of the philosophy of the two parties. Republicans are winner-take-all. It's very cut and dried. You win, you lose, you go home, we're done. (laughs) Democrats say, you didn't lose, you finished second. (laughs) We'll give you some delegates and some cookies and everyone will feel better and then we'll go on. But I do think given the rules of the Democratic game, it exaggerates the early primaries even more. And California probably gets divided up between But here's the thing. Eric Swalwell, and coming back to Swalwell, Eric Swalwell can't even afford – he's got to risk his whole political career – to go to the first primary. Right. In other words, the timing of it is such that... He could do very well in Iowa. He's, but if he, yeah. if he competes in Iowa, he's already past the deadline to file for his seat. Oh, yes. Yeah, so so, so, yeah, yeah, right. so yeah. he's got to make up his mind before Iowa. Well, I wouldn't yeah. go quite that far. Jerry Brown would tell you that running failed presidential campaigns does not ruin a political career. <laughs> well, okay. that's true, but 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 Jerry wasn't running for president at the same time at the same time that his gubernatorial seat was up. Yeah, I agree with right, you. I don't right. think I don't you think see, he's going to give up yeah, a, a I, very safe seat in the East Bay. Yeah, uh, I, I really just yeah. I, I I mean maybe he'll surprise me, but I don't think so. Yeah. Okay, but it'll Swalwell be in twenty forty eight. We're we're running a bit short on time. I did want to quickly mention. Uh, we have a new California Republican leader. Um, That's right. Yes, uh, they elect a new chairperson. Uh, the, party's, the state party's first ever female chair, 38-year-old Jessica Patterson. Uh, any thoughts? Uh, do- yeah, oh. I was there uh, this last weekend at the California Republican Party convention, uh, and they did take a, a very a big step forward. Uh, first ever Latina. She's a mother of two to be the chairwoman of the uh, Republican Party. I mean, it's a party that's challenged. It's overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly um, older. Uh, so this is a good thing for Republicans. Uh, they also, uh, you know, elected the first openly gay man as, a, I think, treasurer and uh, an Asian-American immigrant as as vice chair. This is This is a good thing for the Republican Party. They need to recapture some of those votes that they've been hemorrhaging uh, for years, she uh, she says that the you know the the war is on now. The the Democrats are are, are on notice that the party's going to change. We're going to have to see if that happens here in California because that's a very big lift. Um, they're they they are at third party status right now, and the problem is almost any candidate who runs statewide in California with an R after their name. Uh, it's a scarlet letter. I mean, uh, yeah, it, 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 it was a, a smart thing for the Republican Party to do. It's always better to be a mile outside of hell heading out than 100 miles away heading in. <laughs> so it was a good, smart step, but it was a small, good first yeah, step. Yeah. I think the very best that they can hope for, given a, a state party chair, the best concentrate on infrastructure and logistics and fundraising, they can't really uh, impact the broader political landscape, I think the best thing they can hope for from her is someone who begins taking those tangible steps to lay the groundwork for a post-Trump Republican Party That's right, because the California. challenge is as long as Trump is... Yeah. It's, it's worth noting that two of the most popular governors in the country are, Repu- are Republican governors of the deeply Democratic states of Massachusetts Correct. and Maryland. Right. There's no reason that a Republican can't succeed in this state if they're willing to run a different type of Republican, that won't happen as long as Trump is on the landscape. Once he leaves that landscape, whether it's in 2021 or 2025, someone like Patterson is well positioned to take, help them take the next right, steps. Right, right. Okay. Um, very briefly, because someone in the audience asks about Oakland teachers' strikes. Uh, we don't have another week to week for three weeks. Will uh, the teachers be striking in three weeks, Dan? Probably not, but 
You know, it's there's a lot of polarization out there. You know, I mean, I'm I'm hearing they keep getting closer, and that's the district keeps upping its offer with every day. You know, I mean, so you know, but uh, you know, the the, the the thing about this is that there's a much bigger question of what they can afford, and any deal they can afford, you know, they're they're under state oversight. Will 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 that get any deal get approved? Uh, you know, the overseer basically said, "Hey, uh, the teacher's demand of twelve percent. He, he he's not going to. He won't buy off on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so you know, I mean, Dan, in the in the LA teachers' strike last month, in addition to salaries and, and, and benefits and staffing, in addition to the bottom line dollar issues, the other red letter debate was over charter schools. Um, has that played into the? Oh yeah, it's, it's play, I mean, it's it's it it's, it's 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 definitely in, in the discussion there. It's, it's I mean, fascinating. It's, it's the same it's, discussion, it's, but you know. it's worth remembering that a quarter of a century ago, charter schools were designed to be a compromise between those who supported private school vouchers on one end and those who were supporters of traditional public schools on the other. And in fact, the original charter school legislation was carried by a Democratic state senator from a from the Central Coast, it's fascinating to me to watch how what was once the middle ground has become a, right. a poll. And, and it's ironic, one of the most uh, uh, successful charter schools in Oakland is, was started by Jerry Brown, a military mm-hmm. academy there. Uh, he's gotten a lot of funding for it. Um, that this charter school debate is going to continue to go forward. It's interesting to me that the L.A. teacher strike got so much press. Yeah. Uh, and really, I feel like the Oakland teacher strike, even though there are tens, tens of thousands of kids out there and... and and, and parents that are being inconvenienced and teachers that are out on the street, it's not getting the kind of attention, uh, I, I don't think. And I think that's uh, maybe the mayor is just not. I mean, it, it, Eric Garcetti was all over that uh, uh, teacher strike. I'm not seeing that in Oakland as much, so I'm wondering if they, if you're right. In three weeks, it could be. Well, it, it could be. be bad look, for everybody. Look, I mean, last words. There, there, there are some. There, there are a lot of issues going on in the Oakland strike. And the, the basic bottom line is whether there's going to be some fiscal reality of how you help the teachers and at the same time don't drive the, the district over the financial cliff. And I'm not sure that most people are willing to face question number two. Right. Part okay. number two. On that note, let's go to our news quiz. Okay, so the first question. Firefighters in the German town of Bensheim have been receiving praise from around the world after they helped who escape from a manhole cover he was stuck in? Ma'am. A giant rat. Oh, fat rat. That is correct. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> Wynn Resorts will make a record-setting payout of $20 million to whom? Did anyone see this? The Wynn Resorts, the big gambling firm. Oh, back there? Yes. No. Nope. Uh, no, but you're, you're along the right lines. Think about that. I can't see any other hands. Uh, the Nevada, sorry? You stumped the audience. Yeah, the Nevada Gaming Commission. It's actually over sexual harassment allegations against the company's, uh, former CEO and namesake, Steve Wynn. Okay, don't worry. We have lots of other questions. I have a question that is, now, to deal with California's notorious long lines at the DMV, a state legislator is proposing what be done every other year. Right there. Registering your, registering. registering your car, that's correct. Yay. Okay, the next question. What was former Maine governor and sort of a proto-Trump Paul LePage referring to when he said it would make white people useless? They would no longer matter in this issue. Right there. Right, a legislation that would... Uh, basically, go around the electoral college and award all their their votes based on the popular vote. Interestingly, the former Maine governor now lives in Florida, so that's true. <laughs> Due to political tensions with Russia, Ukraine has pulled out of what international competition? This is a huge competition that the U.S. is not a part of. Way back there, Eurovision. Eurovision that's right, the Eurovision Song Contest. Half the people are saying, what is the Eurovision song contest? <laughs> we, we're not in it. You know? We're not Euro enough. Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she supports exploring whether the United States should pay for what historic crime? Right there in the blue? Slavery reparations. That's correct. 
let's head back to Germany. Prosecutors in Germany are considering filing criminal charges against members of an extreme right-wing party that did what in Nuremberg? That kind of has echoes from what used to happen there. Let's put it that way. Anyone see this? No? Okay. They uh, held a torchlit rally at a stage once used by Adolf Hitler. In Germany's defense, it should be pointed out that all of 18 people showed up, uh, as opposed to the hundreds at the Charlottesville rally. Here's a name in the political news. Uh, who is Leslie McRae Dowless? Hint, he's in North Carolina. Right there in the second row? Yes, he's the guy who did all the That's correct. He's the political operative who got in, who was doing the ballot shenanigans that are now causing them to do a redo of that and election. And he got charged yesterday. Yeah. On what day did the U.S. Cyber Command shut down Russia's infamous troll farm, the Internet Research Agency? It was a certain day they shut it down. Um, uh, as, uh, oh, yes. Election day. election day. The midterm election day. That is correct. Because, of course, that's the group that uh, did a lot of interference in our previous election. Now, a man went viral for buying $540 worth of Girl Scout cookies. What happened next to him? That is correct. He was arrested in a DEA drug bust. Um, Sarah, put down the thin mints and put your hands up. Okay. Sycamore Valley Ranch. That's the new name that was given to a rather famous or infamous ranch in California that was once owned by a now late famous singer. What was that ranch? Ma'am. Neverland. Neverland. That's right. Michael Jackson's former Neverland Ranch. Uh, by the way, it has been listed a few years ago for $100 million, now just days away from that HBO documentary, The Ranch is Back on the Market, listed for only $31 million. Yeah. and it has a new name. I'm sure that's all coincidence. What former Beverly Hills 90210 star recently suffered a stroke? Right there on the... Uh, the Luke Perry. Luke Perry, that is correct. And for our final news quiz question of our seventh anniversary party, <laughs> just weeks before a general election there, the prime minister of what country is set to be indicted on corruption charges? Sir, weighing back, Netanyahu of Israel. That is correct. Well, we're going to have more news quiz questions, of course, and a lot more to talk about, including checking in on the Oakland teachers. In three weeks on March 20th for our next week-to-week program. Thanks to our great panel today, Dan Bornstein, Carla Marinucci, and Dan Schnurr. Thanks to all of you here and everyone watching and listening online. If you would like to come up and sign our birthday card, we'd love it. But have a great weekend.